0: John chapter three 22 to thirty John three 22 to 30 he must increase he must increase 322 After these things Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he was spending time with them and baptizing and John also was baptizing in anon near Salim because there was much water there, and they were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity to study your holy scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for this example here of John and John's humility. John correctly understood what he his role was, and that was to exalt Jesus Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. Give us, Lord, insight into this. Give us, Lord, a desire to be as humble as you desire us to be, according to the example of John and others that we know in Scripture. Teach us this, Lord, and may this be a characteristic of the work of your Holy Spirit in our life. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, after discussing or explaining what happened with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, Jesus and his dialogue, and then the aftermath of that dialogue, and a further confirmation of it, now we're going to see in the last part of chapter 3 a transition, an actual transition from John to Jesus. John the Baptist to Jesus Christ our Lord. There is an overlap of a period of time, as we see in verse 24, 324, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. And then once he's thrown into prison, then his execution, his beheading is imminent after that. But there is a brief time, a time when John's ministry and Jesus' ministry overlaps. Then, naturally speaking, when... You have two prominent men, two prominent individuals, leading crowds and crowds of people. You're going to have, among the people, and even potentially among the two leaders of the crowds, a division, conflict, competition, envy, jealousy, strife. You you will have that inevitably because of human nature. Human nature is... Uh, prone to doing things like that, prone to making these unnecessary distinctions to the point of creating conflict and division and schisms among the people in order to say that one is better than the other. And this, this is the example we have here. We have a transition between John and Jesus and a potential for a conflict. But how does John, John the Baptist, diffuse the conflict? How does John the Baptist explain his his role in relation to the person and ministry of Christ? This is important for us to understand and to learn from this how to prevent this kind of conflict, this kind of division, this kind of jealousy and envy among ourselves, both within our local church but also among other Christians and even when we participate and cooperate with other Christians and other churches or other Christian ministries. How is it that we should behave? This passage will teach us. Verse 22. From 22 to 25 or 22 to 26, we have the occasion for the conflict. The potential conflict is here. The occasion or the setting for the conflict and then the resolution of the conflict or the explanation to diffuse the conflict in 27 to 30. Those are the two main sections. So, what is the occasion for the conflict? 22 says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Now, they were, according to the end of chapter 2, in Jerusalem, and now he has left Jerusalem and he's gone into the land or the broader territory of Judea. Jerusalem is the major city, the chief city in Judea, and now he goes into the land of Judea. And there it says in verse 22, he, Jesus, was spending time with them and baptizing. He was spending time with his disciples, teaching them, guiding them, And also he was baptizing. Jesus himself was there teaching them and instructing them about baptism. And these men were baptizing, as it says in 22. However, we do have a clarification in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing, More disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Jesus himself did not participate in baptizing any one individual. He did not do it. He taught his disciples to do it. And in summary, as it says in chapter 3, verse 22, one could say Jesus was spending time with them and baptizing, though The clarification comes in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Jesus himself did not do so. Now, we might ask why Jesus did not do so. I believe he did not do so because he did not want any of the individuals that he personally baptized to say, You were baptized by John. I was baptized by Jesus. My baptism is a better baptism than your baptism because I was baptized by Jesus himself. When people do that, and Jesus is trying to avert that kind of scenario when he does not baptize anyone, he's trying to show to the people that what's most important is not who baptized you and what's important is not that you were baptized or you were immersed, that that is not a big issue, but what it all represents. What it represents is most important. This is likely the reason why Jesus himself did not baptize. We also have actually an, another situation, another example of conflict. And I'd like us to keep our place not only in John three, but also in first Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter one, first Corinthians chapter one, where we have a similar scenario we have a similar predicament, a dilemma or a division because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, what their division was. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed... Concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. There is division in the Corinthian church because according to verse 12 there are people saying that they belong to paul another apollos another cephas and another christ they're trying to say that they have a superior faith a superior experience superior knowledge superior whatever because of their attachment to a certain man and paul argues against that saying christ has not been divided None of us were baptized in the name of any individual. We were baptized in the name of Christ. It was Christ's ministry, Christ's authority, Christ's gospel that is the basis and meaning and purpose of our baptism. And Paul even keeps his distance from the actual ritual of baptism. In verses 14 to 16, in verses 14 to 16, he keeps his distance from the actual practice or ritual ordinance of baptism. He says, I thank God. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And then he says in 16, the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize any other. And why would Paul not know or remember if he baptized any other? Because it wasn't a big issue on his mind. It wasn't something that he kept in his back pocket. He didn't keep a notebook. I baptized so-and-so on this date, in this location, and I baptized this number of people on this date and this location, and and he did not keep a running total of that. Contrary to what many people have done. Many people have. Many pastors and evangelists, they do things like that. They count the number of baptizees. They count the number of converts, supposed converts, They keep tabs on that and they keep a record of that and then by the end of their ministry and end of their life, they announce it to people. They do it all along the way as well, but they also announce the total, the sum total at the end. That's not the way Paul thought. That's not the way John the Baptist is teaching his own disciples not to be that way. Why? Because Christ did not send me to baptize. The ritual itself is not the big issue. It's the meaning of the ritual. So don't make that a big deal and connect the ritual who conducted the ritual, the ordinance to a man and associate with that man and create a conflict between that man and another man who baptized others. He keeps his distance. And I think that's the same as what Christ is doing in John chapter three, keeping his distance from the baptizees in this way so that no conflicts arise or the conflicts are minimized. Now, let's return to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 23. In 3.23, it says, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim. Now, this would be not too far from the land of Judea, perhaps in the land of another tribe, the land of Manasseh, but it is there in the land of Judea where there is plenty of water. Notice it says, he names the, spe- the specific place Anon near Salim, and these were very small towns near the Jordan River and probably near the Jordan River and the Jabbok River. The Jordan River going north and south and the Jabbok River going east and west, probably near the confluence of those where there was much water, he says. Because not every location of the Jordan River had plenty of water. But John chose to go to a place that was deep enough. And as John says, it says there was much water there. That's why John chose that location because of the much water in order to use that water as the location for baptizing or immersing his candidates. Now, this is a very important expression when it says much water. This is one of the key passages of the New Testament that clearly, obviously, without any doubt, calls for baptism To be immersion. In fact, as we have said before on other occasions, the word baptism is actually an unfortunate word in the English language. It's an unfortunate word in the sense that it's a transliterated word and not a translated word. It's a transliterated word just like the word Amen is transliterated from Hebrew and then Greek and into English. Amen. If we were to translate the word Amen, we would say surely or truly. We would say something like that if we were to translate the word Amen. Well, the word baptism is similar from Greek into English. It has been transliterated from the Greek word baptizo when it should be translated immerse, to immerse or to dip, to submerge the individual or the object water. That's the way it should be translated. I do so on the basis of Greek authority, that is Greek dictionaries, Greek lexicons. I cite one here that says that the word in the Greek language means to dip, to dip, and he also transliterates it as to baptize. But if we're dipping, we are not sprinkling or pouring To dip means to immerse or to submerge the person under water. That's coming from the one Greek dictionary uh, that I just cited. And this dictionary is by a practitioner of another Christian or so-called Christian denomination that does not practice immersion. This dictionary is by such a scholar. Another dictionary by other scholars who also do not practice immersion or dipping of their candidates, a part of their own denomination or church. They don't practice it, but they have compiled this lexicon. And in this lexicon, they say it it means, the verb baptizo means to dip repeatedly or to dip under, to bathe, And then further, they say to baptize. So when they say this, it means to dip or to dip under. They're talking about immersion. They're talking about immersion. Furthermore, among Protestants or in the Reformed group of Protestants, Reformed or Calvinist group of Protestants, they also practice sprinkling or pouring but usually they do not practice immersion or dipping. They do not submerge their candidates for baptism under water. But I believe they should be as honest as Calvin was on this verse. I cite Calvin from his commentary on John three twenty-three. He says, dealing with the expression, much water there, plenty of water there, He says, quote, From this, we infer that John and Jesus totally immersed people's bodies in the water when they baptized them. He says, once more, John and Jesus totally immersed people's bodies in the water when they baptized them. Being an honest interpreter of the Bible, This was his conclusion based on John 3, 23. He does the same in in Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. He makes a similar statement that the eunuch and Philip went down into the water and came up out of the water, that the eunuch went all the way into the water. He was immersed or submerged in the water. He makes a similar point there. The problem with Calvin and many others is though they might be honest about the text of scripture and what it's teaching, their practice ends up deviating from what they said the scripture teaches. But we should not be that way. We should not do so. We should go with what the scripture says and hold to that accordingly. And why should we hold to that accordingly in scripture? Why should we do so? The question relates to what baptism signifies. What does baptism signify or what does it mean? And for that, we turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What does baptism or immersion signify? Romans chapter 6 will inform us. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do we see here what Paul is saying? We see that Paul is comparing baptism. He's saying, he's using the word baptism to signify what? That spiritually speaking, we have been buried with Christ. We've been buried. So we are put under the ground or in the ground. We're not on top of the ground. Uh, Dirt is not just sprinkled on us. But we're in the ground, under the ground, just as Christ was buried. So our life was buried with Christ. Our sinful life was buried with Christ in order that as Christ rose up from the dead, came up out of the grave, we too, when we come up out of the water, we come up out of the water displaying and signifying that we have risen with Christ to newness of life. We are dead to sin and alive to God. That's the purpose of immersion, to illustrate and to remind us of this fact of our conversion. We die to sin and we live to righteousness. That's why the burial is the way to describe the baptism or the immersion. Immersion signifies our burial. Literally in Christ, he was buried. But spiritually speaking, when we identify with him, we die with Christ and we rise to righteousness. That's the way that baptism is signified. Then, we need to also clarify something. We need to clarify. We do know from verse 22, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. From verse 23, John is baptizing. So, we have to ask the question, was John's baptism and Jesus' baptism, were their baptisms, the same baptism, or the same immersion, or were they different? Was the significance of John immersing people, was that different than Jesus? Some say yes, and some say no. Quite often, the interpretation is, yes, they had a different purpose. They say John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, but Jesus' baptism was a baptism related to salvation, forgiveness of sins, related to the cross, believing that Jesus died and rose again for us. John was not preaching the death and resurrection of Christ, they say. John was merely preaching, repent and be baptized to be forgiven of sins. That is the distinction that people often make. So that John's baptism is not related to Christ's work on the cross, it's not related to that. It's a different baptism than Jesus' baptism. However, I think among many passages we could cite, one of the clearest and most um, obvious ones is Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. This one will show clearly that John's meaning of baptism was the same as Jesus' meaning of baptism. John and Jesus had the same meaning in the, or the same purpose in immersing their people, their candidates, under water. Acts 19, verse 1. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. It says in verse one that these men were disciples. Now, when it says disciples, it becomes evident that they professed to be disciples, but they didn't really understand. That's why Paul has to explain the gospel again and then immerse them, correct? And then they receive the Holy Spirit. They thought they were disciples, but they were not really disciples. They behave like it, they mixed with other disciples, but they didn't really believe and understand. Paul brings this point out in verse two, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, when he says this, he's trying to get from them a sense in which they have the internal witness of the Spirit and even the external witness of the Spirit, that is some manifestation in their life to have a confirmation that they truly do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And their answer in verse two is no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that is incredible that they would say such a thing. We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. They don't know in the existence of the Holy Spirit. If that's what they're saying, Genesis chapter one, verse two says, And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Isaiah 63, 10 and 11, he mentions the Holy Spirit, Spirit of the Lord. He mentions that fact. And even if they were saying, we don't know even if John was preaching the Holy Spirit. Was John preaching the Holy Spirit? We don't even know from John and our association with John's ministry, whether he was preaching the Holy Spirit. But do we know that he was? Certainly he was. From John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 32, John bore witness saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove upon him uh, out of heaven and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in water the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So when these disciples, superficial disciples in Acts 19 say, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit, well, John's been telling them about the Holy Spirit. So evidently, among John's own disciples who are likely baptizing other people and making them disciples, somewhere along the line, The people that encounter Paul here in Ephesus, these men, have not been taught correctly, not been taught accurately. They have not been taught accurately or correctly somewhere along the way, or they weren't paying attention. They weren't paying attention. Maybe they were sleeping or distracted or whatever. They weren't paying attention. They didn't know. So since they didn't know, verse 3, he confirms their baptism, and they say, into John's baptism. So they are talking about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, if we read him correctly, understand him correctly, there's no way he could have been misunderstood. There is no way that his teaching and preaching was deficient. And that is confirmed in verse 4. Now Paul the Apostle tells us what John was saying when he was baptizing. It says in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. So, so far right there, that's true. It was a baptism of repentance, but the baptism of repentance was not exclusively teaching repentance. There were other truths, other doctrines being taught. What else? Telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. So John was also telling people to believe. Not just repent, but also to believe. Believe in whom? To believe in Jesus. And to believe in Jesus when? When is he coming? After me, Jesus is going to come and start preaching. So believe in that one. And what do we know from John one twenty nine? When John saw Jesus coming, approaching him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John was also preaching the crucifixion of Christ On behalf of our sin. He was preaching Jesus coming after him. So in this way, when anyone wants to make a distinction between John's ministry and his meaning of immersion, it cannot be different than Jesus. It is one and the same. So they themselves, John and Jesus, in their fundamental purpose was the same. It was one and the same. Nobody should seek to make a distinction between them. Now, this is important not only for interpretation of the Bible, not only for the understanding of immersion or baptism, but it's also important to deal with the conflict because what do people do? They assume that the meaning, the purpose, the goals of these different preachers, different pastors, different prophets, different apostles is completely different and they create divisions. They create conflicts and uncertainties And they they just cloud the, the, the water with this kind of stuff. But we can't do that. There is a unity, there is a harmony, there is a singularity of purpose in the Bible. And that is indeed the case with baptism. Okay, then further, we see in verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. We do know from, for example, from Matthew chapter 14, John was unjustly arrested, unjustly executed, he was beheaded. All of that happened unjustly because he was preaching against the sin of the authorities. He was preaching against their sin because they were committing adultery and they didn't want to hear that anymore, so they arrested him and executed him. A time came When John was off the scene, he was not around for people to be distracted with John, right? A time would come, but at this time, it had not yet occurred. At this time, it had not yet happened. We have contemporary leaders, contemporary preachers of the gospel, John and Jesus there among the people. And this created the situation. This created the occasion for the conflict two prominent ones leading and guiding the people. As it says in John chapter 4, John chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, it says that Jesus or his disciples specifically were baptizing more disciples than John. We already know John had multitudes following him and now Jesus has more multitudes following him. So naturally there's going to be a source of division, the people having a propensity, all human, we all have this propensity to think about ourselves in comparison to others. So this became the occasion while they are contemporaries for there to be a division, for there to be conflict. Then verse 25, 25, there arose therefore, notice whenever John the apostle says therefore, connected to what happened before. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. So John's disciples and a Jew, and perhaps this Jew is a Pharisaical Jew. Often that's what John the Apostle means in the book of John when he says the Jews. He's probably talking about a prominent Pharisaical or um, Sadducean Jew um, in the Sanhedrin, in the council of elders of the people because they were the magisterium of the day. They were the collection of the scholars and teachers of the people of the day where people would go to consult and end religious questions or end disputes on religious issues. That's where they would go. So this discussion arises about purification or water rites, water rites, and those existed in the Old Testament. Sprinkling of water existed in the Old Testament. Sprinkling of blood existed in the Old Testament. And immersion in water existed in the Old Testament. But not only did it exist in the Old Testament, but by the time of the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had concocted man-made traditions on numerous other rituals related to water numerous others. So it would be natural for them to go to the authorities to ask and to dispute, to wonder about what's right and what's wrong. This is what they do. But where should they have gone? They should have gone to the scriptures. They should have gone to the authoritative, sufficient and clear scriptures. That's where they should have gone. Just as we saw from quoting the commentator, Calvin, when he's is commentating on 23, he makes it very clear. It's quite obvious from from verse 23 that they submerge the body underwater. Correct. But then once you leave the scriptures and you start speculating, and you start thinking, and you start rationalizing, you start. Thinking about, well, this man says that and this other man says this. And this notable scholar over there has written a book on this. And he says, and this other one over there in this other country, he's been around a long time. And his book is an authoritative book. They read his book. They study his book in all of the universities, in all of the seminaries. So we need to consult that one and use his book as the basis and authority for what we believe. That's when the problem arises. That's when the problem arises. When we start going outside of the Bible, we have these disputes, these discussions, these quarrels, these arguments, and we go to others and not to the word of God. We must go to the word of God. We must go to the word of Christ. First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one further illustrates this problem And we see how the Apostle Paul confronts this very problem. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, the, uh, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Apostle Paul cuts right to the chase when he says in verse 18, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What was the problem at Corinth? They did not focus and believe and use the word of the cross, the word of Christ, as their ultimate authority on all disputes. They did not do so. They gave lip service to the word of Christ, but in their actions, their lip service manifested itself as being indeed lip service. They did not do so. They went to other sources outside of the word of the cross in order to justify their behavior, to justify their thinking, to justify their wisdom and their philosophy. But he says in verse 19 that God, is, God destroys the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever. He's talking about worldly, human, natural wisdom. He's talking about that kind of wisdom outside of the Bible is worthless. It's worthless for your authority. And he says, he challenges the people in verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? I challenge you, bring him up. And let us compare him to the word of Christ. And it's worthless, it's vain. And in fact, God is an ironic God. God makes that which is first in the eyes of the world last and that which is last in the eyes of the world first. He does so in this way. It says in verse 22, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Jews say, if you show a sign, we'll believe. Greeks say, if you teach us wisdom, you tell us in in your own intellectual and philosophical way, then we'll believe. And God turns that on its head. He says, no, we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, to Gentiles, foolishness. And Christ actually himself is the power and wisdom of God. And what people consider foolish and weak is wiser than men, verse 25 and stronger than men. What they consider weak and foolish, God turns that around. And then in 26, among the converts, the true converts, God does not choose, God does not call out and save many mighty, many noble, he does not do so. Many wise, he doesn't do so. There's a few, but not many. The vast majority of people God saves are among the people despised by the world as being foolish people, despised by the world as being powerless people, despised by the world as being common people and not noble or part of nobility and royalty. That's what God does. He's in the business of choosing the foolish things, the weak things in order to undermine human wisdom so that God is glorified and no one boasts in anything and anyone except in Christ and Christ alone. That's the lesson from John 2:25. When there are disputes, go to the word of God or someone who will point you to the word of God. Don't go to human philosophies, human books, human wisdom. Verse 26, John 3 John 3:26. 3, John is now about to turn the discussion uh, when they come to him. John 3, 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Now they're afraid. Now they're trying to drag John into their conflict. Right now, or before, they had not uh, dragged John into the conflict. Now they're trying to drag John into their conflict in 26. They first discussed it with the Jew, now they're coming to John. And they call him by the admirable rabbi, they consider him a teacher, but they don't really comprehend the things he's been teaching. He who was with you beyond the Jordan, so you were together, we know you immersed him in water, we know you, John, immersed Jesus in water, and you have testified of him, You have said, This is the Son of God. You have said, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You said, This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. You have indicated all that. We know all that. So, on the one hand, they come with this dilemma, but on the other hand, in their words, they're condemning their conflict. Because they know what John has said, but they're condemning themselves for creating a conflict. Because. Not only are they doing so testifying that John has testified, you have borne witness, but their problem is all are coming to him. And what they mean by all are coming to him is in chapter four, verse one, more disciples than John. There's a lot more people going over to Jesus than to John. And they're expressing it with this figure of speech, all are coming to him. You don't have as many now as Jesus has. Now, what would normally happen to any man in this situation, immediately, any man who hears this, who has his own disciples, who has his own students or followers, his own local church or whatever, what happens in the heart of man? What happens in the heart of man when he hears that? And his own people are trying to drag him into a conflict. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to be on your side. Oh yeah. That's the natural response. I'm going to be on your side and the other, other party, they must be wrong. That's what naturally happens in order for us to keep our turf, to guard our turf, to guard our territory, to make sure that we don't lose anybody. And to make sure that we maintain our own reputation, to maintain our own fame, and even to maintain our own fortune. We'll lose money if people walk away, right? These are the temptations that all pastors face. They face these temptations all the time to compare Um, when people compare one church with another church or one pastor with another pastor, this happens. How does John diffuse it? How does John answer it? Does he succumb to the temptation? No. Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. A man can receive nothing unless unless it has been given him from heaven. In verse 31, he further says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So firstly, right there in verse 27, we could not have anything unless it came to us as a gift from heaven. Even what I have, John's point is, even what I do have, even the success and prosperity of my own ministry, even this calling to be the greatest of all the prophets, as Jesus called John, Jesus called John the greatest of all the prophets because he was the precursor and the forerunner, the announcer of Jesus Christ, the imminent coming of Christ in his ministry. That's what he was. So John could have boasted in all those things, but he didn't. He acknowledged that all of these responsibilities and privileges, these honors that he had, actually came from heaven. Not only with him, but with everybody. Everything we have comes from heaven. It comes as a gift from heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? What do you have that you did not receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? James 1.17, James 1.17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Everything comes down from above. Every good thing comes from above as a gift of God. Therefore, if everything comes as a gift of God, not only to John, but to everyone else, why in the world are we boasting about it? Why in the world are we drawing attention to it? Why in the world do we not deflect and say, Glory to God. Why do we not say it's by God's grace? Why do we not say something like this? A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from above. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above. What you have that you did not receive? That's the way we should speak and think about these matters. Not draw the attention to ourselves, but to others. He further says in verse 28, John 3, 28 You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Verse 28. Now he's throwing their words back on them. Remember in 26, they say, whom you have borne witness, because they heard him say that. And now John is telling his own disciples, you yourselves bear witness, you yourselves bear witness. Don't you understand what you're saying? The moment you come to me with these words of conflict to drag me into the conflict that's in your own mind, don't you see how you are condemning yourself? Your own words are condemning you? You know what I said about myself. I said, I am not the Christ, because earlier in chapter one, some people were wondering, they were perplexed and curious, is, John, is this John, John the Baptist, is he the Christ? Or are we supposed to look for somebody else? So in their confusion, John clarified already in chapter 1, and they know, John 3, 28, John had said, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. He clearly, categorically, dogmatically said, I am not the Christ. So if, if I am not the Christ, isn't the Christ supreme? Isn't the Christ exalted above all else? Isn't he the King of kings and the Lord of lords? So why are you coming to me like that? He's pushing back and saying, no, don't do that. I am not he. But not everyone resists this temptation. Not everyone resists this temptation. Many, many people over the years have claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Many, many people have claimed to do so. Jesus even warned us in Matthew 24, 23, and 24 that many false prophets and false Christs will arise and will mislead many. Over the centuries, many have done so, claiming to be the one and the only, claiming to be the supreme one. But it's not true. It's not true. In our own day, in our own day, we have had um, people claiming the 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 branch Dravidians. You might remember that a few years ago, in the '90s, they were massacred by Bill Clinton and his administration. But they claimed he claimed to be an anointed one he claimed to be that um over the years for many decades there was uh there is the moonies sung young moon the moonies he claims to be a reincarnation of jesus christ he's still alive and he celebrated his 60th wedding anniversary and so he claims to be the christ um even um Louis Farrakhan called Barack Hussein Obama the Christ. He said he's the Messiah. He called him the Messiah. He did, and Barack Hussein Obama didn't reject that. He gladly took that flattery. So they, there are many people who identify themselves as the perfect ones, the untouchable ones. They can, they can do no wrong. And many times this happens with people and pastors. And here yet, John says, no, I am not the Christ. Who am I? But I have been sent before him. I have been sent before him. That's who I am. I am an announcer. I am a forerunner. That's who I am. So who is more important? The man who comes in the announcement or the announcer? The one who comes after the announcer, right? The one who comes after the forerunner, he is more important. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. So if everybody knows that, how is it that you can be so blinded by your envy and jealousy that you come to me with this conflict and try to set one against another? You try to set me against Christ. And then he uses a common example of it that no one can deny, He uses a common example that no one can deny. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. John, and by extension, all of us who are brought into the same scenario, John considers himself to be the friend of the bridegroom, or in today's terminology, the best man. The best man or the friend of the bridegroom, John considers himself to be that. Jesus, our Lord, he is the groom, and the bride is the church. The church is the bride, Jesus is the groom, he is our husband, and John considers himself the one who connects the church to her groom the bride to her groom just as it happens in our weddings who stands there right there at the front ready and anticipating the groom to come in it's the the friend of the groom and then the bride comes in and when the bride comes in the bride comes to the groom the bride does not come to the best man the friend of the groom the bride doesn't marry the friend of the groom. The bride marries the groom. So John says, why are you expecting everybody to come to me as though I am the groom? I'm not the groom. I'm the friend of the groom. I'm the best man. And my, my duty is to do that which promotes this union between the groom and the bride. And in the same way, we should do so. We are to do the same. First Corinthians, First Corinthians, Chapter 3. 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. Verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building." Here he uses different analogies, building and field. He's speaking of planting and laboring in that way. But in dealing with the conflict of identification with different ministers of the gospel, Paul says, who are we really? Verse 5, servants through whom you believe. Yes, God uses the agency the instrumentality of individuals to convey the truth of God to other people. God uses them. That's all true. But notice, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, even that privilege, even that scenario, even that circumstance was not created by the individual, but was presented and created, the Lord gave opportunity to each one to do so. We are not called into ministry if we are ministers. We're not called into ministry because of our own ingenuity, but God gives us the opportunity. He calls us and gives us the opportunity to minister to the people. Or even if we are not pastors, when we encounter other people, and let's say someone is interested, someone begins to read the Bible, someone hears what we have to say and is interested in the gospel, even that opportunity was orchestrated by God, not you. Many times, those kinds of unexpected incidents occur, and God is the one who orchestrates them. God's the one who gives opportunity. So how should we consider ourselves, verse six, one of us waters, uh, sorry, one of us plants, another waters, but God causes the growth. Yes, we do need a planter, we do need a waterer, but ultimately, how will the seed grow? Not because of our greatness, not because of what we do, but because of God who causes a seed to actually to sprout and to grow and to bear fruit. Right? So we're not anything in verse 7, but God who causes the growth. Yes, we'll all receive a reward when we work together. Because he says, now he who plants and he who waters are one. Verse eight, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Yes, we'll be rewarded by God. And we we, we will be rewarded if we work in unity. When we're not working in unity and in division, then it is selfishness and jealousy. Then we also see in John three, John three, (coughs) verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John 3.30. Can we memorize that verse? John 3.30. An easy numerical reference to remember. John is an easy word to remember. John 3.30. And then he must increase, but I must decrease. Can that be on the forefront of our minds day by day? That Christ must increase in everything that happens, His righteousness, his name, his glory, everything about him increase in our life day by day. May he be more involved in our life, in our thinking, our values, our words, our actions, and especially whenever we encounter other people. Whether they come to us with their genuine needs or when they come to us with their conflicts, may he increase. May Christ increase in everything we do, everything that is about us. May he increase, which means we must give him the glory. We must point the finger to Christ. We must bring the bride of Christ to the groom. We must do so. That's the way we should act every day, causing him to be glorified. So then whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians ten, thirty-one. On the other hand, If he's going to increase, there is uh, a repercussion to it or a reciprocal behavior outcome. And that is, but I must decrease. But I must decrease. This is John further explaining humility. This is the way humility works. Humility works in this way that when we promote Christ, we demote ourselves. When we exalt Christ, We debase ourselves. Now, we don't debase ourselves in any superficial way. We're not talking about taking a whip or taking a chain and hitting it over our backs. We're not talking about asceticism. We're not talking about saying, woe is me and walking around with a mopey and dopey face. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about living in extreme poverty, living in a monastery, living in the jungles and eating herbs and insects, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the way of a godly Christian life, which is characterized by humility as we saw when we read Philippians chapter 2. Paul gave two examples, the ministry of Timothy and the ministry of Epaphroditus. He gave two examples. Christ has a supreme example in the first half of the chapter, but the last half of the chapter, those who truly are dedicated to loving Christ and helping the people of Christ, the bride of Christ in their daily to day lives and in their church life. This is the way of being a minister of the gospel who considers himself demoted or debased or decreasing, whereas others are increasing. Our focus is them, not us. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 1. 15, 1. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not Just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. So what are we to do? Not merely please ourselves. Verse 1. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. We ought to be thinking about who today can I edify? Who today can I benefit? Who today needs a ministry of the word or even in some other tangible way, physical way? What ministry does my neighbor need today? Today, I'm going to the office. Today, I'm going to the factory. Today, I'm going to the school. Today, I'm going to this new person's house. Today, I'm going to the store. When we see those kinds of situations, anticipate what we must do in those situations for another's good, for another's edification. And again, verse three, Christ is the perfect example. He did not please himself, but he pleased the Father. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. When people reproached or blasphemed or slandered the Father, whatever happened there came on Christ. Christ took those slanders, those blasphemies upon himself so that another might be benefited to the glory of God the Father. And that should be ours as well that we should bow the knee to Christ, Christ alone, to the glory of God the Father. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.